0: Well, I thought this would be a great way to kind of start this morning. It's a, it's a funny joke here. During a particularly brutal win- winter, a man and his wife decided to escape on a vacation to Florida so they could relax and enjoy some warmth. His wife was on a business trip and was planning to meet him there the next day. So when he reached his hotel, he decided to send his wife a quick email to let her know that he arrived. Unfortunately, he mistyped one letter in her email address. And this note was directed instead to an elderly preacher's wife whose husband had passed away only the day before. When the grieving window, widow checked her email, she took one look at the monitor, let a piercing scream, and fell to the floor dead. At that sound, her family rushed into the room and saw this note on the screen. Dearest wife, just got checked in. Everything prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Your loving husband. P.S., Sure is hot down here. (laughs) Misunderstandings could be the death of you, (laughs) like this poor lady. Jesus tells us and he teaches us that the truth will set us free. But the corollary of that statement, though, is that lies will place us in bondage in some way, some form. And I think there's a massive deception that has infiltrated our, our Christianity, our church today. I use the word deception because on face value, it looks good. It looks appealing. But it's when you begin to peel back some of the layers and you begin to understand what's at the core of it, what's at the, lie, at the heart of it, that's when you begin to see the lie of it. And I don't know exactly when this deception began to be be proclaimed and and taught within our churches. And I'm, I'm mostly sure, I'm very sure actually, that most people, the vast majority of those who continue this deception, don't do it with any malice. It's just they've been taught this way and this is what they're teaching others. But the problem with this deception, despite their good intentions, it really is an exaggeration of the gospel if there can be such of a thing. And we'll explain what I mean by that. But if you think about what is the gospel, you know, we were told, we were, we were sure, maybe you had something like those three circles video where you were told that if you were to pray a prayer and receive this gift of salvation, that all your troubles would instantly go away. They'd disappear. And that was sort of what I was taught growing up. That was sort of the message of the gospel that I was, if it was not stated explicitly, it was implied to us. And it was almost like if praying this prayer was some kind of magical incantation that would remove all our hurts and remove all our pains from our past. And suddenly we would live in perfect peace with great patience, wonderful joy and hope. No more problems. Everything would be great. Always smiling, always happy, waiting for the day Jesus comes to pick us up. And we kind of had that expectation. And so with an offer like that, who wouldn't pray this prayer? I mean, who doesn't want to have all that? And make no mistake, something happened. Something, something changed forever within you and I. A new person, a whole new person was born again. We were crucified with Christ, raised up by this brand new person. And, and for a brief time, everything seemed to work. Everything seemed to, to take. It was like we experienced a little bit of heaven on earth. But then, maybe slowly at first, we begin to notice some cracks in the facade, that, that things aren't as great and as wonderful as we expected them to be. We began to realize that the hurts and the problems and the pain of our past didn't, in fact, disappear, that they were still around. But to make matters worse, we kind of believed that it worked for everyone else. That we were the only ones that still struggle. We were the only ones that it didn't quite work for. And, and so there's something wrong with us because we just can't seem to get our life in order. And so we think, well, we just got to pretend we have it all together. Hide the issues. Just make sure no one quite sees behind my, my problems and behind, or behind my, the, the surface that I'm trying to project to them. And so we learned some catchphrases. You know, some of the lingo to use with other people and, and, and that way we kind of can answer their questions without actually answering their questions. We just sort of learn how to deflect. We, we start reading the right books and we listen to the right podcasts and, and, and desperately seeking for ways to, to discover that what does it need to do? What prayer do I need to pray? Where do I need to go? What do I need to do to make this all work? And so really what happens is fake it till we make it becomes our motto. We attend retreats, conferences, maybe change churches, hoping to find that secret to experiencing this thing called the abundant life. And just maybe we find something that makes a difference. And for, for a time, we feel like we're on top of a mountain, like everything is clear again, and we can breathe, and everything's great, and we finally found it. And so armed with this new dedication, this new commitment, we return to everyday life thinking, finally, I found the secret. And now I'm going to begin to experience that perfect peace and that joy and everything that was promised to me long ago. Until the same old cracks begin to appear again. And the despair and the frustration and the bitterness, and the hurt and the shame, the low sense of self-worth. Except now it's even worse because I failed again and again and again. And now I begin to think that there's something wrong with me with this Christian life. That is working for everyone else, but not for me. And so God must be withholding his blessing because he's disappointed in me. Because I'm, I'm failing to measure up to what he expects of me. I'm not holding my end of the deal. And so we carry this hurt and this burden, and it's almost worse now than it was before. And, and the result of all this thinking and effort is, is because we're living in the disillusionment of this exaggerated gospel. Now, what do I mean by that exaggeration? I call it an exaggeration because Father never promised that He would instantly take away all of our problems at salvation. He never promised that He would take away the despair and the grief and the sadness forever. You would never experience it again. He never even promised that they would just magically vanish. For after we were changed at the cross and became a new person, the truth is that we actually begin this process, this, this lifetime process of healing. It's one where we're beginning to renew our minds, replacing these lies with truth in order that our emotions can begin to heal, which begins to allow us to make healthy choices and better choices with new behaviors. And that's what Father's word calls sanctification. The prophet Isaiah told us that God intends to heal us but too many of us thought that meant that Jesus was gonna come and bam, everything would be great. Sort of like Chef Emeril, right? A Little bit of garlic, bam, everything's great. But the reality is it means that we come to Jesus and we receive this incredible transformation and then we walk with Jesus as he begins to work out this healing in our lives, bit by bit, in me, in you, over the rest of our lives. And so this is what sanctification's about, and that's what we wanted to explore this morning. So let's open with a word of prayer. Oh, Father, this is, this is a topic that has caused much hurt, and much pain in many people's lives. And Father, we want to know your truth. We want to know your freedom. We want to hear from you and what your word says about what this sanctification looks like. But more than that, we want to experience it. So, Father, you brought each and every one of us here this morning for this purpose. And I pray, Father, that your word, your truth would go out and speak not just to our our minds, but to our hearts. And that we would be able to receive all that you have planned for us this morning. And for that to happen, we need you to be the teacher. So I trust you, as best I know how, for you to make that all happen. In your name we pray. Amen. I think, I think God's given us this great picture of what sanctification can look like or does look like in the story of Lazarus. So you think about that story, right? Lazarus, he had he had passed away. Jesus, in fact, he let him pass away, knowing full well that he was going to resurrect him, and and so he he comes and and Lazarus is dead in that tomb, and he he calls forth and brings Lazarus out, and and what was interesting there is Lazarus would have been wrapped up in his grave clothes, and so I I kind of picture you know growing up, I remember watching Scooby Doo, and it seemed like every other episode there was a mummy. Right? You, everyone watched Scooby-Doo? I'm not the only heathen. Good. So they'd kind of walk around this way, right? And they'd be bandaged up and every limb would be individually bandaged. Their fingers would be individually bandaged, a little bit hanging off. And, and so I, I kind of think that's not what Lazarus looked like. I don't think he was wrapped up individually. He was probably wrapped up like this. And he couldn't move. He was in this cocoon. So I kind of imagine what was it like for him to walk out of that tomb? Because I don't think he could walk. So I don't know if he did the penguin shuffle. I don't know if he hopped. I don't know what he did, but he, he came out of that tomb. And, and here's where Jesus does something or says something that I think is, is so instructive to us. You see, the, the picture of the, the resurrection of Lazarus is very much like the picture of our own resurrection, our own coming again to life, our born again, because you and I were dead in Adam. And at that moment of salvation, God in a way calls us forth and we walk out of that tomb as with brand new resurrection life, a new life. But just like Lazarus, we're kind of wrapped up in our, our grave clothes. We're wrapped up in death, wrapped up in the hurts and the struggles and the pains that we carry with us. And so what's interesting here is that at this moment in the story, it's Jesus, he turns to everyone else around Lazarus and says, help him take off these grave clothes. Strip away that death so that the real life can come out forth with nothing to hide it. And I think that's a great picture of you and I that he invites us, the church, to trust him so that together in partnership, Jesus and his church can come alongside one another and we can begin to strip away the remnants of death, the grave clothes, so that life that has been bound up Can begin to burst forth. And so that's a great picture, I think, of what sanctification looks like. So I want to give you an illustration this morning about how I think this all works and how it plays out. So it's a it's an illustration where it's gonna require your imagination. But I want you to imagine our life as an apartment. Right, So you have this this giant apartment and, and you can't see it very well, unfortunately, in the lighting here. But we got some blank walls and we got some nice hardwood flooring from uh, from PD, PDJ Shaw flooring. It's been great and stuff. And so it's uh, it's taken care of. And so now you kind of move in this this apartment here. It represents your life. And now we need to decorate the apartment we want to decorate the walls. And so we're going to put some pictures up here on, on the walls, except these pictures are important. They're not just sort of, you know, nice paintings or, or landscapes and so forth, the things that look pretty or go well with the furniture and so forth. No, these pictures are going to be significant moments, significant events in your life from growing up. The events and the, the, um, The memories that have in some way gone to shape and form how we see ourselves and our place in this world. And so they they could be all kinds of different memories, all kinds of of different thoughts. They, They could be about you. They could be about other people. They could be about God. Now, for some people, they grow up and everything just seemed to work for them. They never had a single bad day in their life, it would seem. They just, they got straight A's Were the, the popular kid in school were voted most popular. They, you know, homecoming king or queen. Everyone wanted to date them. Athlete, you know, rising up in, the, in their job and perfect family, 2.2 kids and everything. Everything was just great for this person. Except I don't know if I've ever met this person. <clears throat> I mean, maybe there's some people out there in and, and all the, the wonderful moments the, the, you know when they won the trophy and scored the game-winning goal. Maybe that would be their memories. But even if that were the case, it would all be about how great they are. But I think the reality is for the most of us, that's not our story. I think for most of us, we've grown up with a lot more hurts and a lot more hurt or rejections, a lot more uh, struggles, and things we just can't seem to shake. And so maybe maybe one of your pictures is is a picture of your parents. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's a blank picture because you didn't have a dad or a mom. But in this case here, maybe it's a picture where your dad was yelling at you. And that's sort of the one of the big memories or one of the major moments, major takeaways of how you saw your dad, how he really felt about you. And, and maybe it wasn't so much that he was always angry at you, but really the key is how you interpret all this. How you, how you take that event and that moment and how, what it says about you. And the thing about little kids is little kids are incredible recorders of information, but they're lousy interpreters of that information. They, they take it and they memorize it and remember it, but they never actually can properly begin to interpret it. I remember as a little kid, I, I remember looking around my family thinking, I'm so different than my brothers and my sisters. Maybe I'm adopted. And that must be it. That's obvious. That's the most obvious answer that I'm adopted. I know there's pictures of my mom and me in the hospital, but those, you know, that's probably not real. And so clearly I must be adopted. And I felt like I was an outsider. Well, that wasn't true, but that's how I interpreted my life. And and so it ends up happening. Really, the key isn't so much what happened to you, but how did you interpret it? What did that event and that moment say about you? Because that moment and that event begins to define how I see myself. And so maybe you felt like you were a screw up. You felt like you're just a big, giant failure and disappointment that your parents just weren't pleased with you. You couldn't live up to the family name or maybe you embarrassed it. That it wasn't really wanted by them, that I was, I was a mistake or they're just tolerating me because they didn't know what else to do with me or, or maybe that I'm just lazy and good for nothing. And so I begins to form how I see myself now. And then there's other pictures. Maybe it's times where I was hurt by other people. It could be a time where we were bullied by other kids in school. Maybe you're beat up. Maybe you're humiliated somehow. They, they teased you or they, they did something to you in front of the whole school and everyone laughed at you. Maybe there were rumors that were spread around you. And, and so now the, the caption or the takeaway, the, the beliefs about myself begin to, to fill out even more. And I believe, well, I'm weak and I'm just scared. I'm so afraid. I feel so vulnerable and insecure. Maybe it's the result of some kind of abuse that was perpetrated upon you while you were a little kid. could have been physical, emotional, or even sexual abuse. And you think about how how damaging that kind of event would be on an adult. How much more would it be on a child who can't have almost any chance— at having a, a healthy interpretation about it. So the labels of dirty and good for nothing, but, but just to be used for sex or defective and broken and damaged, these now begin to fill our minds. Or maybe there's a picture with just words and names on it where, you know, sort of the, the self-talk, the names that we, we call ourselves or what we say to ourselves when we screw up. Maybe it's like stupid or I'm alone or I'm rejected one or I'm different, I'm misfit, I'm an unwanted person. Or maybe this last picture is, is a picture of a time or many times maybe in which you committed some moral failure. Maybe you struggle with a sin ongoing. Maybe it was a, a, a series of small sins or maybe it was a one big sin. Maybe it was adultery or abortion or when you when you hurt someone else through your words or through your actions, when you betrayed a friend. And then so in this picture, in, in big letters, we almost see over and over again that I'm unclean, I'm impure, I'm dirty, I'm unlovable, I'm damaged, I'm disgusting, and I'm a failure. We go through life and we keep hanging new pictures up. And these new pictures just... Continue to say the same thing over and over again. And so when you're living this in an apartment, when you stare at the walls, you're just staring, reminded of who you are, or at least who you think you are. And we sometimes try to replace them, try to put up a a, a, look at this. I I got a promotion at work or or this this was a success over here or or I did well over here. But it's amazing how those pictures never seem to remain on the wall It's because we don't really believe them because you could put one up here. It says success, but it's right beside the one that says big, giant failure. And that success picture just seems to shrink to the point where it disappears. Sometimes what we do is we try to cover up the negative pictures. We look at these pictures and we're like, I can't, I can't bear to look at it anymore. I can't stare at it anymore. I just got to cover them up. In, 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 our, in our zealousness, and our desperation, we sort of wallpaper over the pictures. Can you picture that in your mind? This wall of pictures with wallpaper over top of them? Do you think it does a good job hiding it? No. Even just the outline of the picture reminds you, you know it's there. You've been staring at those pictures your whole life. You know what they look like and what they say without even looking at them. So then we try to get more creative. We think, well, I just got to build a new wall and I'll, I'll build a new wall and bury all those negative memories behind the wall. That's it. that's it. Clearly that's the answer. And we build this false wall trying to bury it. But here's the problem with your problems. When you try to bury your problems, you bury them alive, meaning they don't go away. They're just sitting there. And and it's almost like they just either slowly seep through the wall or, or new pictures come up and they go up on the wall. Or maybe deep down, you know what's behind there. Bottom line is they don't go away. Instead, all that happens is your room gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and you feel more and more claustrophobic sitting in this apartment. Well, there's more than just pictures in this apartment. we got a wardrobe. A wardrobe is where we, we hang all of our, our clothes, all of our, uh, our outfits that we put on and we wear. And, and these clothes, they, they represent what the Bible calls the flesh. The flesh is the the ways, the, the the means by which we try to go and find life in this world or at the very least try to protect ourselves to make sure that I don't get hurt anymore. That nobody knows about my struggles and my problems and, and so we have all kinds of outfits here in our in our wardrobe. Let me illustrate some of them. For one outfit is what we call might call the, the power suit. Right, it's the it's the outfit you put on when you got the big meeting, right? Maybe you got a special tie or you got a special shirt or an actual suit or or some kind of an outfit that you put on to kind of pump yourself up when you have to go give that presentation at work or when you're meeting a new client or something like that. And so we put on that power suit, hoping that it will drive us to success because if I am more successful, then I can outrun all my problems. At least that's what we hope for, we think. Another one is the track suit. That's the, the one we put on where we just, just got to work harder, got to keep running. It's even got the little Nike motto on it, right? Just do it, right? That's how our approach to life. If I just work and uh, run hard enough, then everything will be okay. Or, or maybe you put on the rubber suit, right? That's the I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you, right? I know what you are, but what am I? right? I know you're wrong sort of thing. It's it's our way of trying to just deflect everything, just ignore it and, and bounce it off onto someone else to protect ourselves. Or there's the chicken suit. That's where we just run and hide, avoid conflict, be passive, just never, never upset anyone, never rock the boat. Or we put on our Sunday best that's where we try to put on this religious garb or this religious idea that everything's okay and we, you know what, everything's fine and we're going we're gonna to work hard enough and I'm praying and I'm reading the right books and reading my Bible and I'm giving enough and everything's okay. And now maybe God will bless me and unlock the keys to victory. Others have the, the cloak of invisibility. So what they use to hide, to blend in, So no one really can see them. They just sort of blend into the surroundings because if no one sees them, then no one can really pick on them. In our wardrobe, maybe you have a a lawyer's briefcase. It's full of all the reasons why I don't deserve this blame, but I can deflect and protect myself onto other people. It's all the reasons why I really should look good and, and all my arguments behind it. Or maybe you have this sexy black dress out there it's, it's the outfit you put on to gain the attention of another, hoping that they, their love, their approval of you, that if you could somehow be with them and, and seduce them even, that they will make you feel good about yourself. And maybe that is done through illicit relationships, or maybe it's done through a, you know, a, a husband or a wife. But it's just something we're doing, hoping to feel loved. And so we try to act and dress in a, in a sexy man- manner. Or then there's the fluffy PJs, where I just get to withdraw and be alone, kind of isolate, hide under the covers of my bed, just sort of pull them over my head, hoping that everything will go away when I wake up. And then there's others. They put on the bright summer dress. Everything's fine. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. You know, the house is burning down, but isn't it wonderful to be alive today? Right? And they just ignore all the realities and the problems of life. And then others, they put on the supersuit, where they just try and rescue everyone. If I can fix everyone else's problems, if, if you need me, then I'm needed. And then I have value and worth out of that. And we, we go down this pathway towards codependency, trying to find value. Others, they put on the big baggy clothes, so you can't see the real me. We just hide, feel more protected, because the reality is those who have seen me have hurt me, so I don't want you to see the real me. Others, they have the running shorts, and these running shorts allow them to run, run as fast as they can to hide from other people. Others in the wardrobe have a suit of armor. It includes a shield and a sword to make sure not only that you don't hurt me, but I will hurt you before you get to hurt me. And, and this is common in marriages where two people aren't living as one, they're living as enemies. And they got their shields up and their sword ready and their attack first mentality. The problem with that suit of armor is, yeah, not many people will hurt you deeply, but you don't get to receive any love either, thereby guaranteeing that you're going to be hurt deeply. For others, they got a general's uniform, where they got to be in control of everything and everyone around them. Others, it's a judge's robe, where we become critical and judging of others, hoping that if I can knock them down and point out all their flaws, then I can feel better about myself. And then there's the whole wide assortment of masks that we put on. Depending upon the situation we're going to, be it at work, be it a family reunion, be it hanging out with friends, be it going to church, we just put on the appropriate mask so I can blend in, hopefully hiding the shame, the guilt, the loneliness and despair that I'm really feeling. And so these clothes that we put on, I want you to see it's not about whether they're moral or immoral. It isn't about that. What what makes this the flesh is it's it's, it's my efforts. It's my attempts. It is what I'm trying to do to protect myself or find life, find love and worth to deal with all those pictures on my wall, but in my own strength, apart from God. Well, the last piece of furniture or decoration in our apartment is a table. And on this table is where we, we store all our trophies, all our accomplishments, and it might be a, a reputation, it might be a relationship you're in, maybe it's your, your finance, your bank account, maybe it's your job, your career. But it's all the things that we, we hold up to where we look for life from. And the Bible refers to these as idols. See, an idol is not just a golden calf, an idol is anything you're looking to to try and find life, to find worth or significance in your own strength apart from God. That's what makes it an idol. An idol. So we're sitting in this apartment. This is our life. And then, and then one day, Jesus shows up. You know, maybe, maybe he had been knocking at that, that door for many, many years and, and you were afraid to let him in because how could I ever let the Holy One in? How could I ever let this wonderful God into my, my apartment and let him see all this mess? Like, I can't do that. I can't allow him to see that. And so we've we've we rebuked him or we've, we've refused his invitation. But then one day, maybe almost in a moment of weakness, so to speak, one day you take him up on his offer. You allow him in long enough for him to convey his heart to you and how much he loves you. and And his desire for you is that, he just wants to love you and save you. So after some time thinking about it, you risk everything on this promise. I mean, maybe you figure, I got really nothing to lose. Again, it can't get any worse than I've got it right now. And so in that moment, you make the greatest decision of your life. You receive this offer of grace, his offer to rescue and redeem us. And in that moment, everything changes. Oh, I mean, it's amazing what happens. I mean, you were forgiven of everything. It's all gone. Your past sins, your future sins, the times you lied, the times you stole, the sins you committed in your heart, the sins that you committed against others, even the times you wore socks and sandals, Peter. I mean, all of it has been forgiven, gone. Gone washed away by the blood of Jesus. But there was more, more than just forgiveness. Something happened to you fundamentally because of your faith in Jesus Christ. God took you, placed you into Jesus Christ. You were made one with Jesus on that cross of Calvary. And what that means is you were crucified with him. The old person is dead and buried and you are raised up as a brand new creation. One that is perfect, holy, righteous, and totally free, but living in the same old apartment, staring at the same old pictures, staring at the same old memories, still seeing pictures and messages that says that I'm still damaged, still broken, still unloved, still not good enough, still not worthy, still not accepted. And what we do next is so critical. What, what we do to begin to, to live in this new life is so important that we get right. You see, thanks to the Reformation 500 years ago, the likes of, of uh, Luther and Calvin, we learned this wonderful truth that you and I were justified, made righteous, made acceptable by faith alone and not by our works. And the, cl- the call for that the, towards salvation was absolutely clear and undeniable. The invitation was come to Jesus just as you are. It doesn't matter what you've done, who you did it with, how many times you've done it. Jesus loves you just as you are. But here's where the lie comes in. You see, somehow after salvation, everything changes. And it's almost like there's a little bit of a bait and switch After salvation, we are told that you're no longer acceptable just as you are. That although Jesus loves you as a sinner, more is expected of you today. So now we need to change. Now we need to make sure that we stop certain behaviors. We adopt new ones. And if you don't, and here's the most damaging part, and if you don't, then Jesus won't be pleased with you. He'll be disappointed with you. You know, to be honest, it kind of makes sense. That kind of thinking. I mean, we expect ourselves to be better, don't we? So why wouldn't Jesus expect that? And so we embark on this journey of hard work. We we knew and believe we're saved by faith, but somehow we now believe that we're sanctified and made perfect by our hard work and effort. That our ability to live clean somehow will improve our standing with God. But you see, the truth is that's a lie. You see, not only were you and I saved by faith, not only were we sanctified, or sorry, not only were we saved by faith, but we're sanctified the same way. What I mean by that is that your salvation is not the product of your hard work and dedication, but by what Jesus did for you and to you. And the same is true about your sanctification. That sanctification is not the product of your hard work and dedication, but instead it is what Jesus does for you and to you. See, listen to what the apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. He says, now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 24 says, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. It's not about what you do. It's what Jesus does. And the mistake we've been making for too long is we thought it was all about us. But it's not your job to sanctify yourself. It's God's work. And here's the really cool part in all that. He's faithful and promises to do it. This saved by grace but sanctified by by your works really was nothing new. It's the message that the churches of Galatia struggled with for, for many years. So Paul right, writing to these churches in Galatians chapter 3, he wrote, he wrote this, he says, you foolish Galatians, who's, who's bewitched you? Who has deceived you? Who's tricked you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to uh, find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? How were you saved? Were you saved by your works and your effort or were you saved by what Jesus did? Well, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having been saved by Jesus, what makes us think that we can now make ourselves better? We simply can't. But nor is it our job to do so. What our job is, is to allow Jesus to finish what he started. So, what does sanctification by grace actually look like? Well, I said earlier, I said the moment you and I receive by faith this wonderful gift of salvation, everything changed. The old you was crucified with Christ, buried, raised up, born again. You're now a brand new creation. You're no longer a sinner. The sinner died. You're now a saint. You're a holy one, a child of God, righteous and pure, totally free. But yes, still living in the same apartment. And so here's what Jesus does. I imagine Jesus, he sort of comes up to one of the pictures one at a time. And he kind of looks at it and he says, you know, this this picture was a, a painful moment in your past it's led to so much hurt and so much insecurity because what, what this person was saying about you defined how you saw yourself. But you know, this, this person doesn't live anymore, right? This person that you have a picture of them on the wall, that that's the person that died with me on the cross. You're not this person anymore. So if you're ready, we can, we can take down the picture. And we can put up a new picture, one that's actually fitting of who you are, one that actually accurately describes who you are, a picture that says that you're actually a new creation, that you're loved and you're accepted. That's who you are. And then there's other pictures he comes to and he says, I can't take down this picture because to do so would pretend that the event never happened. And the, the glorious thing is God never, never asks you to pretend that you were never abused, that you're never sexually or physically or emotionally. He's not denying your past. To do so would be ridiculous. What he says is, what I want you to do though is I want you to see that your interpretation of that event was also wrong. And it never ceases to amaze me that the number of people that in our counseling that we do, you know, they were little kids when they were maybe sexually abused. Sexually abused by someone 40 years older than them or more. And what's amazing is they, you know, maybe they were five or six or eight years old when this happened. And now that they're adults, some 30 years plus later, they're walking around and they're thinking that somehow I caused it that somehow it was my fault, that what what this person did to me says that I'm dirty and that I'm wrong and I'm bad. And Jesus comes along and he says, you know, you know what that person did to you says more about them than it does about you. It says that they were hurting and that they were struggling and they had all kinds of their own hurts and pains and that's how they acted out of it. But what they did to you says nothing about who you are. And the the memory begins to shift, not that we pretend it never happens, but now suddenly we have this picture that Jesus is there. I had this one story with one lady she came in she she was in a bank robbery, and uh, she was right at the teller when the the guys came in armed with guns and everything and and they they rushed her into the teller and they they made her get below the 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 desk of the teller as he stood there with his gun, barking orders at the teller. And, and she was terrified over this. And so we began to pray and we said, Jesus, what what was really going on here? And, and she, as she's praying in this memory, she's picturing it. She goes, I see Jesus and he's walking towards me and he's sitting now wrapping his arms around me as a human shield between me and the, the man holding the gun. We didn't pretend that she wasn't in a bank robbery anymore, but she began to see the spiritual truth of what was really happening. How Jesus was there, and Jesus was protecting her. And so our memories of these events begin to change. And then the third picture, you know, the more we spend time, we spend listening to Jesus, the more we begin to discover what really defines us. It's not our accomplishments. It's not our resumes. It's not our successes or our failures that define us who we are. Instead, it's the fact that we are children of the most high. That the the God and the creator of all of this says, you belong to me. You've been bought with a price. You've been born of me, born of my spirit. You're a brand new creation. This is who you are. And we begin to define ourselves in different terms. And then even in those worst sins, those, those things that we've done and we think, that, that can't ever be undone, that can't ever be forgiven. And Jesus says, oh no, that's what I've done. You see, too often with our sins is we get so fixated on our sins and we make them so big, we begin to think Jesus is so small. But the reality is, no matter how big your sin is, It is small compared to Jesus and what he has done on that work of the cross, what he has accomplished for you and I has made you clean. And those sins become a testimony and a trophy of God's grace. Is not that not the story of the Apostle Paul who says, I'm the chief of sinners. What I have done, I've persecuted the church and yet I am a testimony of God's grace and his love and forgiveness of me. And so now we, we have those memories. And while we're not proud of what we've done, we rejoice in what God has done. We even get a new wardrobe. I mean, the reality is these clothes don't really belong to you anymore. They belong to a dead person. But they feel comfortable at times. They, they feel good, but the reality is they don't look good on you anymore because they're not fitting of you. They're not, they're not your style. It's not who you are. Instead, now we get to put on a whole new set of clothes where it's grace, where we get to live and walk by the life of Jesus Christ and the fruit of the spirit now begins to come out. And so we get to put on outfits such as love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. And as we put on these outfits, how does that begin to ripple through our life in terms of our relationships with our our spouse and our kids and the ones we work with and, and maybe go to school with. And even our table changes and we can let go of those things that had an unhealthy hold of our heart. And for some of those things they need to disappear and go. Maybe it was a job or your whole identity was based on that or a ministry even. And God says, I need to take that away from you now. And we're able to let that go. Or maybe it's a relationship. And it's not so much that he takes the relationship away, but maybe it just has a different place where it's no longer the thing that was honored the most. What is honored the most now is our relationship with Jesus Christ because he's the one that matters the most. All this happens by the work of Jesus Christ in our hearts and our lives. So what do we do with all this? Well, first off, please hear me. Don't, don't think I'm saying that we're passive in all this. That you just sit back and enjoy the ride and suddenly you wake up one day and you got a whole new apartment. That's, that's not what I'm saying. will happen. Because Jesus invites you and I to be a part of the journey. It's a work he's doing, but he invites you and I to be a part of. And in many ways, he invites the church to be a part of. Remember the story of Lazarus. He instructed others to help Lazarus take off the grave clothes. And so for this journey of our healing, the goal is that we're going to come to know and discover how much God truly loves us. That may involve the help of a good counselor who can ultimately lead you to the wonderful counselor. It might start with finding a trustworthy friend, someone to just begin to share your struggles with. Because often the things that we're so ashamed of, the things that we're hiding and we're trying to bury behind those walls, the moment you bring them to the light, you begin to discover they're not as big as you first thought they were. That the shame was multiplying in the darkness, but when you shine the light of Jesus on them, they begin to vanish. And so maybe sharing that with a a trusted friend who can point you to Jesus, maybe that's the first step towards some healing. I want you to know there are people here Greg and myself in particular, but there are many people here that would love to pray with you and talk with you and walk with you. It's why we started New Life Fellowship. So there could be a place, there could be a community of grace where people could share the worst of themselves and be more loved in the sharing of, talent, in the sharing of that with others. But let me leave you with one last thought. It's one of the best kept secrets in the church And I don't say that in a positive way. I say that to our detriment. Every one of us is still a work in progress. You're not becoming someone different. I'm not talking about a progressive sanctification. What I'm saying is we're all a work in progress in discovering who we are. I still remember the moment my daughter Hannah was born. She's literally less than a minute old and I'm holding her in my arms and God gives me this great thought. He says, in my arms, I hold a complete woman. She's less than a minute old, but she's already a complete woman. She's not getting any more female today than she was when she was born. All she's doing is she's growing up into the woman that she already was the moment she was born. It's freaking me out, by the way, just saying, but... (laughs) But she's not any more female or feminine. She's always been that way. Well, you and I, you don't become more righteous, more acceptable, more loved at all. You're simply maturing and growing up into who God already made you in that moment of salvation. And so every one of us is a work in progress. Every one of us, God is doing something in our hearts. The only requirement from us the only thing he's looking from you and I is the humility it takes to recognize the need for this and the willingness to trust God and others so that God could do that work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. I pray that this will be a message of freedom. that too many people who have been hurt and bound up with our hurts and our, our failures and the abuse of our past, the traumas, the rejections, that they would realize no matter how big they are, they don't compare to how big you are. And that's not to minimize in any way their hurts. It is to recognize that you are so big and you are so able to, to bring healing to those tender areas of our life. And that we would would trust you to take down these pictures one by one. That we would be confident that you wouldn't even scold us when we put the old ones back up and try to convince you that somehow you're wrong. But that in your love and in your patience, you'll wait and encourage us to take these pictures down and put the new ones up. That you will encourage us to put on a whole new way of living. One that is in in trueness to the new self that we are, creating the likeness of Father God in holiness and righteousness and truth. Father, would we, every one of us, be willing to trust you in this journey? And would you lead us as to what the next step would be? In your name we pray, amen.